in March of 2008, we were responding to the needs of approximately 218,000 people, including 79,000 children here on Long Island. What happened during COVID is the numbers increased by approximately 64%, which brought us to an unduplicated number of 480,000 people. Now, 480,000 people is approximately 17 to 18% of the entire population of Nassau and Suffolk County. That is Paul Pachter, chief executive of Hophog-based Long Island Cares, the Harry Chapin Food Bank, discussing the enormous impact the COVID-19 pandemic had on regional food insecurity. Just one of the life or death topics we cover today on Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast. Be secure in this knowledge, dear listener. It's another great conversation. This is Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast, featuring up-close conversations with the inventors, investors, executives, and entrepreneurs fueling the dynamic Long Island innovation economy. Spark is a production of Innovate Long Island, the home of exceptional thought in NASA and Suffolk and beyond. Today's episode is made possible by the generous support of Brandtelling, where professional marketing, communications, and brand building always starts with an interesting story. A great dichotomy of Long Island life is the mind-boggling gap between the haves and have-nots. The island, as local listeners know and most non-local listeners likely suspect, boasts some of the nation's wealthiest zip codes, and not just the Hamptons retreats of movie stars and corporate magnates. From Sands Point to Brookville to Lloyd's Harbor, the island's Gold Coast is long and luxurious and well-off. And it stands in stark contrast to Long Island's less advantaged locales. Some estimates count 218,000 food-insecure Long Islanders, including about 80,000 children. And with a third of Nassau residents and nearly half of Suffolk residents priced out of nutrition assistance programs by strict federal guidelines, tens of thousands of islanders are left without food and without help. All this pressure cooks the work done by today's guest and his amazing team. Paul Pachter is CEO of Long Island Cares, the Harry Chapin Food Bank, which annually distributes more than 16 million pounds of food. Speaking mathematically, that's about 13 million meals. Mm -hmm. Speaking practically, it's a life or death resource thousands of islanders can't live without. Paul earned a master's degree in social work from Adelphi University in 1979 and became CEO of Long Island Cares in 2008. He was, as they say, a good get for the food bank. The former deputy commissioner of the Nassau County Department of Mental Health was already known for wide-ranging contributions to mental health fields, including his influential lobbying for social work parity laws and his relief efforts following 2005's devastating Hurricane Katrina. At Long Island Cares, the CEO has modernized donation and distribution processes, helping the food bank pace demand. And during his 14-year CEO run, he's kept his oars in other important waters. Paul's an adjunct instructor at St. Joseph's University, where he teaches a graduate course on executive leadership and innovation, and also a member of the Long 
Island Association Board of Directors. So naturally, he's a very busy man. And naturally, we're grateful for today's visit. Mr. Paul Pachter, welcome to the Innovate Long Island podcast. Thank you so much. uh, I really did appreciate that introduction. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Now, I mentioned at the top that you became CEO at the Harry Chapin Food Bank in 2008. Uh, For the record, Long Island Cares was founded in 1980 by the famous singer-songwriter and was actually the first food bank based on Long Island. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you became CEO there in 2008 when the organization was already three decades old. Uh, First, tell us what you'd been doing up to that point. Well, up until the time that uh, I arrived at Long Island Cares, I was the deputy executive director at Central Nassau Guidance and Counseling Services in Hicksville. So I was I spent my first 27 years of my 42-year career uh, in the mental health system. Uh, of course, as you mentioned, working my way up uh, to the deputy commissioner of the mental health department under then county executive uh, Tom Galata. And uh, I guess it was in October of 2007, I was in Washington, D.C. with 18 other nonprofit leaders from Long Island. We went uh, on a a lobbying trip, I guess you can call it, uh, with Bethpage Federal Credit Union at the time. Uh, Kurt Kordaleski was the president of uh, Bethpage Federal Credit Union. Sure, Kurt. And uh, 19 of us uh, took the... uh, plane to Washington, D.C., met with former Congressman Steve Israel, got a quick introduction to uh, Congresswoman Pelosi. And on the trip, uh, a friend of mine, Patrice Frank, who was with the Usdan Center uh, here on Long Island, mentioned to me uh, while we were taking the bus to the restaurant for dinner that Long Island Cares was looking for a new executive director. I was familiar with Long Island Cares from the day it opened up in 1980. In fact, uh, the story that I've you know been telling for the last 15 years uh, is that on July 16th, 1981, uh, which is the day, of course, that lives in infamy for Long Island Cares, uh, Harry Chapin was to do a free concert at the Lakeside Theater in Eisenhower Park. And as fate would have it, at 11 o'clock that morning, uh, Harry lost his life on the expressway. But that day, July 16th, for me, was a day that I really was looking forward to because I had reached out to uh, County Executive Galata and asked him if he could uh, broker a meeting between Harry Chapin and myself, that I had known that he opened up Long Island Cares. I read about it. I heard about it on uh, television. So I knew what was going on. And at that point in time, Greg, I was also the president of the National Association of Social Workers uh, in Nassau Mm. County. And that's 2000 Social Workers Strong, professional membership organization. And the reason I wanted to meet with uh, Chapin was to find out what we as an industry, social workers, uh, could do with him to help him not only promote Uh, the work of Long Island Cares, but perhaps help him raise money, mobilize volunteers, uh, get involved in some good social advocacy and social justice action around the issue of food insecurity and hunger. So all morning long, you know, I'm anticipating this three o'clock meeting with Harry Chapin at Eisenhower Park Mm -hmm. because that's when he was going to do his sound check. Uh, 
And of course, that morning, uh, he was gone. So I never got an opportunity to meet him, to ask him what I can do. You didn't meet him, but you did obviously come to the organization. Um, and what, what did you find when you got there? What, what was the, it was, I guess, 28 years in already by the time mm-hmm. you came along. Uh, what was the state of things when you arrived? Well, the state of things at Long Island Cares when I got here in March of 2008 was that it was a wonderful organization. Uh, at that time, there were 35 people uh, working for the organization. We had an annual budget of $8.5 million. And uh, in the interviews that I did, not only with the professional search firm, because the organization used the search firm to recruit the next CEO, I met with the search firm, I met with the board, and uh, I really, in many ways, I guess I interviewed the board because what I wanted to know from them was what do they want of a new CEO? The previous CEO, Lynn Needleman, was with the organization from the day it opened. So there was a long history of having a very stable CEO in front of the organization. But the board shared with me that they really wanted me to focus in on two things. One was to expand and diversify the board membership, because at the time there were 14 people on the board. And the other thing was to recapture the reputation that the organization had. Uh, What was happening with Long Island Cares in 2008 is that many people had heard of Harry Chapin, but Long Islanders were not that familiar with Long Island Cares. So that was the charge that I got, you know, increase the board, diversify the board, and rebuild our reputation. And that's what we've been doing for the past 15 years. So if you fast forward to where we are today, uh, the $8 million, $8.5 million budget is now a $36 million budget. The 35 people that were employed by Long Island Cares uh, now total 71. And in 2008, there was only one location, our main building in Hophog at 10 Davids Drive. And today, uh, our network consists of eight individual locations. And so the organization is continuing to grow smartly into areas where we see the need is high and that the emergency food network on its own, the pantries, the soup kitchens, the other programs that we support with food and funds, uh, didn't really have the ability to expand their operations. And so that's when Long Island Cares uh, became very actively involved in direct service programming, which is where we are today. We're going to get to some of that programming in a second, Paul. Um, but let me ask for a second. Um, we, we couldn't have this conversation, of course, without discussing COVID. Um, sure. Obviously, it would be impossible to fully discuss mm-hmm. the food bank without noting the, the impact of the pandemic. Right. Uh, on your website, you post some statistics noting that in 2020, at the height of the COVID crisis, Mm-hmm. Food insecurity on Long Island increased something like 60%. Correct. And that was a year-over-year change, jumping from, mm-hmm. from 2019 to 2020. Uh, right. In your business especially, that is a very sudden and a very dramatic spike. Absolutely. Uh, so, how, I mean, what do you do in a situation like that? All of a sudden, you have you know 60% or more 
mm-hmm. uh, additional families coming to you for assistance, right. um, do you suddenly have 60% more donations to help feed them? Well, that that's that's an excellent question. And, you know, let's go back two and a half years ago when uh, all of us first heard about COVID-19. Uh, simultaneously, learning about a global pandemic and coming to the realization that one of the most significant challenges the country, the state, the region was going to have was going to be to address the issue of food insecurity. People, as you recall, uh, were being furloughed. People were not uh, receiving paychecks. They didn't have the resources that they previously had in order to feed their families. And the statistics that you provided in the introduction are correct. In March of 2008, we were responding to the needs of approximately 218,000 people, including 79,000 children here on Long Island. What happened during COVID is the numbers increased by approximately 64%, which brought us to an unduplicated number of 480,000 people. Now, 480,000 people is approximately 17 to 18% of the entire population of Nassau and Suffolk County. What really made a difference uh, in our work during uh, COVID were two things. First of all, there was an incredible amount of federal funding being given to the states, being shared with the localities. So in areas like the town of Hempstead, where Supervisor Clavin received, you know, close to $400 million in additional CARES Act money, where Nassau and Suffolk County received, you know, a little more than $300 million. Everyone was looking at food insecurity. If you go back to the images that we all saw together in 2008 of thousands of cars lined up uh, in parking lots uh, for families to pick up, you know, a 30-pound box of food or a case of water, uh, that was on television screens 24-7 every single day uh, during the first year of COVID. And uh, surprisingly, but very rewardingly, I have to say, uh, local government, certainly the town of Hempstead, Nassau and Suffolk County, the town of Babylon, Huntington, uh, all of them reached out to Long Island Cares to see what we could do if we had available funding to address the issue of food insecurity. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges that we had in 2008 still exists today, perhaps not at the high level that it existed in, uh, you know, two years ago, but that was the issue of supply chain and demand that on a, any given week when we place an order for food and we purchase approximately 70% of all the food that we distribute, the average wait time was usually somewhere between two and four weeks, depending upon where the product was coming from. Okay. If it was coming from New York State. You know, we had it within four or five business days. But because of the supply chain delays, we were looking at three and four months to get food in. Because of all the publicity 
and all the good publicity that we were receiving, uh, Long Islanders responded in incredible, incredible ways. During the first two first year of COVID, we raised more money at Long Island Cares than we did for the three previous years combined. So wow. people kept giving. And I got to tell you, you know, I've been doing this now for 15 years, tack on to that the 42 years of my human service career. We never saw donations coming in like this. The average donation we were getting was between thirty and fifty thousand dollars from an individual. The corporate donations were much larger. Uh, Bank of America, uh, wonderful, wonderful corporate supporters of Long Island Cares, donated more than seven hundred thousand dollars. I'm sorry, can you back up one second, Paul? You said thirty to fifty thousand dollars. Those were in donations combined from individual people or no those were individual donations people were writing checks between 30 and fifty thousand dollars asking us to open up pop-up locations asking us to do additional community outreach if if we had the ability so we were able to raise probably it was close to about 36 million dollars during the first two year the first year year and a half of covid And that allowed us to, as I said earlier, double the amount of staff that are working for us. We, during COVID, we had the 25 pop-up distribution uh, food sites. Mm -hmm. We were able to open up additional ones in the Stony Brook area uh, based upon the community turning to us and saying, look, we will fund this if you can do it. So this was all privately funded. The The wonderful thing that we come out of after two and a half years, and I don't know that many food banks have experienced this, that of all the people, all the donors that contributed to Long Island Cares in uh, the last two and a half years, 46% of these donors have stayed with us. It wasn't COVID one and done. So- You know, right now we were able to not only stabilize, but expand our donor base to where it is today. And that's approximately 28,500 donors who donate to Long Island Cares on a regular basis or at least monthly. You know, the logistics of everything you're describing here are Mm -hmm. phenomenal. I mean, first of all, raising the millions of dollars, the Long Island community rallying the way it did. But, you know, even with the money in hand, you still have to be able to set up those remote places and you have these satellite locations. Now you got to bring the food in, you got to get the food out. Now, despite all of these uh, challenges, Charity Navigator, which is a a scoreboard of sorts that issues uh, trusted ratings of 501c3s and and other charitable organizations. Uh, Charity Navigator gives Long Island Cares a top four-star rating, uh, including perfect scores for accountability and transparency, uh, and for leadership and adaptability, which is a direct endorsement of the longtime chief executive, I would think. So congratulations on that. Um, I also read that 91% of each donated dollar to Long Island Cares, uh, that's 91 cents from uh, every dollar, uh, uh, goes toward programming. Uh, that's incredible. That right there is incredible. How do you manage that? Well, we manage it because we know how significant it is for rating organizations like Charity Navigator or the, or the Better Business Bureau to have enough trust in a nonprofit charity that they would be using 
90% or 85% or even 80% of the dollars they raise uh, being reinvested into their programs. You know, one of the uh, benchmarks of a nonprofit charity is that we don't show a profit at the end of the year. Uh, when we do our budgets, we can show a surplus, we can show a deficit, but it, we're a nonprofit. So any surplus that we have available to us has to be reinvested into direct service programs. Mm -hmm. But as I said earlier, prior to 2008, Long Island Cares only had two direct service programs, a, a career development counseling program and a community education program for the schools where we talk about children's food insecurity. Mm -hmm. uh, we have grown in the past uh, 15 years to provide extensive mobile outreach services to at-risk populations such as our veterans, uh, the homeless, our homebound seniors. We uh, expanded our career development program to do specialty uh, work with our veterans and with single-headed uh, households where women are the primary uh, breadwinner and looking to go back uh, into the workforce. Uh, and then, of course, we added the pet pantry. We added on six satellite locations. Most recently, we opened up a new building right up the road from our main building, which is our new Center for Community Engagement, which mm -hmm. is a whole different kind of concept that looks at root causes of hunger. So we were able to prove to you know the rating organizations that we knew how to invest our money. On average, a nonprofit charity that uh, invests 65% of their budget in non-administrative expenses mm -hmm. is doing a good job. But when you can increase that 65% to 80%, 90%, 92%, uh, yeah. your rating is going to be higher because we keep our administrative costs as low as we possibly can without jeopardizing the quality or the integrity of our programs. And, you know, that takes our development staff, it takes our finance staff, it takes our administrators, uh, our board of directors, all working together to make sure that we maintain the ratio of administrative to program costs, because 90% of the people that donate to a nonprofit charity are donating to that charity to support their programs to help people in need. The last thing mm -hmm. they want to hear is, well, we want a $30,000 grant because we want to buy a vehicle for our CEO. That, right. you know, that's not what people donate for. So, you know, we, we've been very successful over the last 42 years of uh, telling our story both accurately and honestly. And uh, I guess people really do respond positively uh, to the work that we've been doing for more than four decades. You mentioned uh, mobile pantry programs and mm -hmm. there are veterans outreach programs. Um, I know food insecurity among Long Island seniors is another critical issue. Uh, you wrote in a recent column for Innovate Long Island that more than 54,000 Nassau and Suffolk seniors currently rely on emergency food networks. Mm -hmm. um, so this led to your new Supporting Our Seniors program. Can you tell us right. a little about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Supporting Our Seniors uh, was a very interesting program. Uh, what happened, I guess it was about five years ago, if I'm not mistaken, 
There was a program that was being provided here on Long Island by our colleagues uh, from Catholic Charities. It's the Community Food Support Program, CFSP is the acronym, and where they were delivering food to seniors at community centers, municipal housing programs. For a host of reasons, Catholic Charities decided not to renew their contract for the program. and. That program is funded through the U.S. Department of uh, Agriculture and through the New York State Department of Health. So we reached out to the Department of Health to ask them what their plan was to uh, continue the CSFP program and how how the seniors are going to continue to get the food. And unfortunately, uh, there was no plan. Uh, Mm. They felt that the program really wasn't needed that much on Long Island and that if they just give a little more money to the food bank for New York City, they would be able to continue the program. Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't sit with uh, me very well, uh, because I thought that uh, what the Department of Health was doing was shucking their responsibility to have a coordinated effort to feed seniors on Long Island by Long Island organizations. As much as I enjoy working with our colleagues in the boroughs, Uh, They do not understand the corporate culture or the community culture uh, on Long Island. And, you know, you alluded to to that earlier on in terms of, you know, affluence in the region. Yes. And so uh, we mobilized all of the programs that were benefiting from Catholic charities, brought them together uh, with some of our state legislators on a bipartisan uh, effort, and even brought the seniors in. And we launched a public relations campaign, which several people applauded and others attacked me daily uh, for doing it. We wound up on the cover of Newsday three times uh, about the senior hunger issue. But in the end, the state gave us a three-month contract to continue the program until they could stabilize their funding. During those three months, we were able to make the case to individual donors and more importantly to corporate donors here on Long Island to talk about the program and the need to continue this without state funding. The state funding simply becomes a little more prohibited Hmm. uh, in terms of what you can do. And that uh, resulted in the creation of SOS and what we've been doing for the last uh, three, three and a half years with SOS Uh, is we are delivering uh, groceries every other week to an unduplicated number of 1,950 seniors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's in addition to all of the seniors that visit our satellite programs on a monthly basis, those that uh, visit our pet pantry to feed their dogs and cats. And so right now, between our satellites, our mobile pantry, and the SOS program, we're delivering food to about 7,000 seniors. And during COVID, uh, they were really having a very, very rough time. And in fact, to the credit of Hempstead Town Supervisor Clavin, he came up with a really good idea about creating these temporary pop-up locations. Of the 25, I think 19 of them were set up at local municipal housing programs. So the seniors didn't even have to leave their development to go get food. We brought it right to their, you know, community room. If they couldn't make it to the community room, we knocked on their door. Uh, And it's a very different approach with the seniors that we take. And that is 
uh, on off weeks when we're not delivering, our staff and our volunteers call them. We share with them what we have on our menu uh, to deliver. We always ask them if there are items or products they need that we didn't list that we can help Mm. them with. Uh, Were there other needs that they have not related to food that we perhaps could help them with? Uh, And that's how SOS took off. And that's the way it's working uh, to this day. Let me shift gears quickly, Paul, and just uh, ask you a couple of sort of national level questions. Uh, You don't have to be a food bank executive or a podcast host or or a podcast listener uh, to know that U.S. inflation is through the roof. Uh, that's got to be tremendous news for an operation like yours. It's it's having, in some ways, a profound impact on what the 200 food banks in the U.S. are dealing with. Uh, again, I go back to what I said a few minutes ago, and that is that food banks actually purchase the majority of the food that we distribute to our member agencies. Uh the current inflationary situation in the country, uh, we are looking at pricing for food uh, going up as high as 35% right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Previously, three years ago, three and a half years ago, we were able to purchase food by the pound at about 85 cents per pound. And today, the same purchase is costing us $1.35 a pound. The cost of diesel fuel to support our fleet of 17 trucks uh, are going through the roof at over $6.30 a gallon. Uh, We have to adjust for this because, let's face it, not only is inflation having an impact upon the people we serve, those in need, but it's also having an impact on the people who work for us. And, you know, our staff make decent salaries. They're not rich in any way, shape, or form. And in the last year, we've taken a number of steps to uh, address the issue of inflation and our staff. Uh, we just recently uh, came up with a three-year plan to increase our minimum wage. Uh, currently, as of this past January, it's $18 an hour. Uh, next January, it'll be $19 an hour. And in 2025, 2024, it'll be $20 an hour. Uh, We also increased time off. We came up with a policy by which people could flex their schedules so that the uh, cost of living had a a lesser negative impact than perhaps it would have had if we didn't, you know, take the steps that we took to try and, uh, you know, use the funding we're able to raise in a way that our staff benefits as well, because let's face it, Regardless whether you're a food bank or a mental health clinic or a daycare program, nonprofits' uh, strongest assets are their workforce. Hmm. And there's a need for us to invest in our workforce so that we keep people on the job who are doing uh, you know, great work. But inflation, it's impacted our rents. It's increased our utility costs. Uh, we were planning about... Uh, two years ago to build a second story on our building, you know, to address the needs of a staff that had doubled. Uh, we had an initial, an initial proposal for the program, which was $1.8 million. And when it finally got to the time where we could turn the key and start construction, the cost went up to 3.2 million. 
And that Hmm. was not money that we were going to invest in our building at that time. And that's why we opened up the building down the road to give us some breathing room to sort of take a five-year break to see if we want to revisit this when the economy is better. But clearly, uh, inflation has uh, interfered in many ways with our operations. You know, we're spending more money, as I said, to ensure uh, our work, to purchase food, to pay health insurance benefits for our staff. And at the same time, I'm very proud over my track record of the past 15 years that we have always been able uh, to provide a cost of living increase for our staff at about 3% a year for the last 15 years. For the past two years, we've been able to pass along to our staff annual bonuses to recognize the work that they're doing. That they're doing. Yes. We just launched a new tuition assistance program for our staff and their children uh, because you know sometimes it takes more than money to retain good staff. It takes a good benefit package where people feel highly valued for the work they do. Appreciated. Yes. Uh, Paul, let me wrap this up by asking you the big question. Um, As noted at the top of the show and throughout, uh, there is great affluence on Long Island. Some of the wealthiest zip codes in America are here. Uh, What does it say that food insecurity also exists here to the extent that it does? Well, that's an excellent question. And as I mentioned, Greg, I've been addressing that question for 15 years now. In 1980, when Long Island Cares was founded, there were pockets of poverty uh, in the region. We all knew what communities uh, you know, were populated by people on the lower socioeconomic status uh, in our region. But the Long Island of the 1980s or the 1970s uh, is no longer there. So today, when I talk about Nassau and Suffolk County, and we get into a discussion about the affluence, Today, we find ourselves in an environment where there are pockets of affluence, no longer pockets of poverty. The Mm. majority of people, families living on Long Island are struggling paycheck to paycheck. When you talk about the 250,000 people, which is today's number of food insecure Long Islanders, uh, and we saw this during COVID, why are we picking up more than 200,000 more people, is because people don't have savings that, you know, amount to more than $400. If they had a medical emergency, they're probably going to go bankrupt trying to get health care. So the average Long Islander is struggling. Uh, Those people who live on the extreme North Shore or the South Shore, or as you say, populates, uh, you know, the East End and the Hamptons, uh, they're not the majority anymore. Uh, There are people that are doing well. There are people that a lot of, you know, us admire and respect, people from the entertainment industry through corporate leaders. But right now, the majority of people on Long Island are struggling just to make ends meet. Well, you're here for them, Paul Pachter. You're doing tremendous work and literally saving lives. Thank you for that and for sharing your stories with us today. Some really exceptional stuff, Paul. I appreciate it. Anytime. Uh, Before you go, it's uh, time for Arthur, the producer's favorite part of the show, (laughs) the spark psychoanalysis game, when we torture our guests by trying to find (laughs) out what really makes them tick. You, Paul, you get to choose how we do it. Okay. Uh, I have these these cards here, as always. One says word association, and one says, which is your favorite and why? Mm -hmm. Both are like videotaping a private session with your analyst and then posting it on TikTok. 
Okay. Uh, so, so what, how would you like to expose your deepest, darkest secrets today, Paul? Uh, the, the second choice, uh, I'm not, I'm not very good at word association. So let's go with the other questions. I, I'm going to have to come up with some kind of wordle derivative or something. Cause nobody ever picks word association. So <laughs> favorite and why, which is your favorite and why starring Paul Pactor. Here we go. What is your favorite currently bingeable TV show? Oh my goodness. Uh, I just finished binging all four seasons of Stranger Things on Netflix. <laughs> He's uh, all caught up. Yeah, I'm I'm all caught up. It took me nine nights to do it. Uh, I'm addicted really to bad. Netflix. I totally, you know, admit it. I go home, I finish dinner, it's time to rest. Netflix comes on. Uh, I'm currently uh, binging on a new show from uh, Mexico called uh, Who Murdered Sarah, which is really interesting. Another three-season program. But that that's my guilty pleasure right now, Netflix. That's a good one. Uh, what's your favorite all-time TV show? That's a good, you know, it's a really good question because I I do watch television more today than in the past. Uh, if I had to really dig down deep and say what was my favorite television show, uh, it probably goes back to uh, when I was a child and Saturday morning television was very important to me. You know, I am going to be 69 years old in another couple of weeks. There's a so, Hanna-Barbera reference coming up, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I can feel it. Yep. 1964, the first thing that I turned on when my parents bought our very first color television was uh, the Flintstones. The Flintstones. <laughs> Outstanding. What a great choice for your favorite TV show. Because you know what? It's actually a lot more mature than people give it credit for. As a <laughs> as a rip of the honeymooners, that's some very adult content. But yep. that's another show. Your favorite <laughs> all-time folk singer. Come on, mm. that's a loaded question. But we really haven't discussed the man very much today. So It's interesting because uh, I was a fan of Harry uh, Chapin. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of his songs. Uh, Taxi Sticks Out for Me, of course, Cats in the Cradle, Sunday Morning Sunshine. But my... My admiration for Harry was more because of his social justice work and mm. that here was a guy who was really like every man. Harry was so accessible to people, to his fans. It's always been said that he was the last one to leave uh, his concerts mm. because he wanted to make sure that he gave quality time to everyone that came to see him. But if I had to really say who my favorite folk singer was, it would be the late Phil Oaks. Oh. And the reason for that is he... He was the first person that sort of piqued my curiosity about music and social justice and how you could make, you know, a statement through songs. Harry certainly continued that because he's got some classics out there that address social justice issues. Uh, and I and I always get sad when I think about if he wasn't gone, what would he have been composing today? Where would Harry be on issues of you know, discrimination against LGBTQ? Where would Harry be on mm. gun mm. safety? Where would Harry be on, uh, you know, social justice and systemic racism? Uh, so I, I think the world lost a very strong voice, but in many ways, I hope uh, that through the work of our team here, that we can continue making sure that people have those messages. Uh, and I guess that's why we're so involved in the uh, advocacy arena and things that we do. All right. Quickly, your favorite emergency food assistance program that's not Long Island Cares. Food Link in Rochester, New York. 
one of the most innovative food banks uh, I've had the pleasure of working with in the last 15 years. And finally, Paul, the favorite part of your job? Uh, the favorite part of my job is working with the other 69, 70 people that I get to spend time with every day. Terrific stuff. Again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Pactor. Paul, thanks for being such a good sport, and thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Stay well. He is the CEO of Long Island Cares, the Harry Chapin Food Bank. I am the editor over at InnovateLI.com, and this is Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast. Thank you, as always, to Innovate LI President Marlene McDonald, aforementioned man in the chair Arthur Germain, and all the big brains over at Brand Telling in Huntington, which produces this podcast and is also our season three sponsor and absolutely stands ready to do wonders for your brand, too. And of course, thank you, dear listeners, for your time, your ears, and your minds. We'll be back soon to chat up another Long Island innovation leader. Until then, stay smart, stay healthy, and donate to your local food bank, why don't you? Peace out. You've been listening to Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast with host Gregory Zeller. To recommend a guest, please contact us at editor at innovateli.com. And to learn how you can create your own podcast, share your story, and otherwise become the go-to brand for customers in your industry, please visit our talented partner and generous sponsor at innovation.brandtelling.com.